I've broken it up a little more than usual. And uh, anyway, I have on the, there's on the back table, there's some handouts. Those are for you to take home with you. And if you'd like to follow along, um, I've got the first week back there. And then the second set of seven days um, uh, of January is back there too. So um, pick one of those up if you don't have one. And we're just kind of reading through it. I've got in there too some kind of explanation or a little bit more detail about some depth of, of some of those, some of the verses that we're reading from day to day. So anyway, if you have, if, uh, if you would, if you haven't got them, pick that up on the way out. It kind of goes along with kind of what I'm preaching. And, and I, my, my prayer is really, um, really honestly, my prayer is through all of this that the Lord would just help us to, um, to seek him better. Um, you know, I, I think about all the things that I would like. Um, you know, I think about Christmas and, and uh, actually heard of a pastor who, who, um, uh, who um, brought things that, that showed examples of what he would want his church to have or to understand or to comprehend. And Jamie was talking about some of that as he was leading worship. But, um, and then uh, I've heard of other pastors who, who have specific things that they're praying and they've just got a list of stuff that year after year they're just praying these very same exact things over and over um, one of the things that I can't, uh, that, that would be the, 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 the greatest gift that I, if I could give you, uh, would be a desire to really wholeheartedly seek the Lord. Uh, it, it just would. If, if I could pray that, if I could just pray that and the Lord would just do it for us this year, man, I would be the happiest pastor in todo el mundo, um, in all the world, right? And, uh, 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 just just be fantastic. And so a lot of our focus, especially this month, is, is really going to be on seeking the Lord together. So that's why on Wednesday nights we're, we're praying together. That's why um, we're reading the book of, of Nehemiah, because there was a real serious seeking of the Lord for his vision and direction by a man named Nehemiah. And he changed, really did change, uh, by God's calling on his life and, and work um, through his people, really did change the history of the Israelites. Okay, this week, uh, this week we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. Actually, we're going to be going through what is today's reading, uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Um, but let me just give you a little preview. In the middle, in, the, in just the middle of the book of Nehemiah, they, well, let me, let me take you through it. So, so here's kind of the history, right? There was um, the Israelites were unable to keep their covenant with God. They kept falling into idolatry. They were mistreating each other. They were abusing the poor and all this stuff. God is accusing them throughout this, this time period with prophets and, and telling them, hey, you're going the wrong direction. If you don't stop this, uh, we're, I'm going to disperse you. There's going to be a, a there, you'll be scattered. He even talks about it actually happens. He, he, he prophesies about it happening through Moses actually way back um, in the, the time of the Exodus and all that. Um, that he prophesies about it. And then, sure enough, they, they don't follow through with their covenant. And so, um, and then about a thousand years later, um, um, well, I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. About um, 700 years later, we see these foreign nations that rise up and start gobbling up huge parts of, the, of, of what's the Middle East and huge parts of the Mediterranean area in that time. And the first of them is the Assyrians. And the Assyrians come and they actually pull captives out of, um, out of Jerusalem and out of uh, Judah and Samaria, and they pull them and they transport them to other lands, and they kind of mix up the people. They take some people from Mesopotamia, and they move them over into Jerusalem in the area of Judah and, and, uh, and Samaria. And then if the Assyrians weren't bad enough, then here come the Babylonians. And then after the ba- Babylonians come the Persians. And the Persians is where our story is set. It starts with Nehemiah. He is a cupbearer to the king uh, of Persia, and he is a cupbearer to the king. He is, a, uh, um, he is a, 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 probably a second or third exile. In other words, his family's been plucked out of, 
Jerusalem or Judah or, or Samaria and been pulled over um, into um, a city called Susa and is there serving the king. Now, he probably wasn't pulled there himself. It was probably his grandfather, maybe a great-grandfather that was pulled there. So he's a second or third generation exile of a Jew who's no longer living there in the promised land, right? And so he receives a vision from the Lord, really. It doesn't say that specifically, but he prays about this situation. He goes to the king and he prays and he asks the king and he says, would you let me go back there? And the king has such respect for, for Nehemiah that he says, go. And uh, writes him a check, basically says, go get the lumber you need. Here's, uh, here, go, I'll write you letters you can give past to the officials and the rulers that I've set up there, and they'll let you go back, and you can rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So since that's happened in verse 1, ch- chapter 2, chapter 3, or chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, there's been a lot of work going on with the wall being rebuilt. Okay, so that's where we're going to pick up here in Nehemiah chapter 4. So... If you would please read along with me, chapter 4, we're going to read the first five chapters. When Sanballat, okay, there were a couple of enemies of Israel. There were governors that would have been basically governors who had been appointed over parts and pieces over Palestine over this time. And they were very threatened by Nehemiah's presence there and by the Jews rebuilding. But anyway, Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall. He became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and many of, the, of in Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Um, let me tell you what else ha- happened during all those times of captivity, during all those times of attacks, is Jerusalem was just utterly destroyed. The wall was just toppled, and, and homes, we're going to read a little bit later in, uh, or maybe we've already read it, I can't remember. Um, we're going to read a little bit about how there wasn't even homes left in Jerusalem for people to live in. They had to rebuild everything because those invading armies had absolutely obliterated everything that was there, from the city wall to the temple to their homes. Okay, Tobiah the Ammonite, here's another one of the enemies of the, of the Jews, Tobiah the Ammonite, who is at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed upon it, he would break down their wall of stones. Now, that's supposed to be kind of sarcasm, cutting sarcasm and funny, right? What he's saying is, uh, right, he's kind of gigging his, his buddy Sanballat, saying, Yeah, those silly Jews that build the wall, and even as, you know, a fox as little as he weighs would knock down the wall. <laughs> it's not really funny today, really. But anyway, and it's so sarcastic, right, that it's just kind of ugly. But anyway, he's saying, What are they doing? They can't get this done. So they pray together, hear us, O our, hear us, o our God, we, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we re- rebuilt the wall <clears throat> till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked on it with all their heart. So Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. He's instructed people. He sets particular officials or rulers or houses or priests over particular areas where they're supposed to go rebuild the gates. And then he tells all the people, where you live within the city, you go rebuild the wall by your house. And so the people just kind of fan out like an army and uh, they start rebuilding the wall that is near their house. And so all together, they're rebuilding all around the city of Jerusalem uh, as this work starts getting done. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the, Arab, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. 
Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild our wall. Um, Also, in verse 11, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. So what are they talking about? So all their enemies now are seeing what's happening. The wall's halfway up and they're thinking, well, they might actually accomplish this. And and they became angry and incensed about what's going on. And so what they're saying is, is that, well, we're just going to infiltrate the city. We'll just move in there with a weapon. And while they're in the middle of building, we're going to basically terrorize them. And we're going to be right in the middle of them. We're going to start killing them to disrupt this work, right? So there's a, a plot that's hatched against them. Uh, then in verse 12, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Okay. And uh, let me just make up a little part of the story if you'll give me a little leeway here this morning. And so Nehemiah turned out and just went back to Susa, right? Uh, man, it, you know, if there wasn't enough trouble from their enemies, if there wasn't enough trouble from all of their different enemies, and they have a lot. I mean, they have whole people groups. It's not just kings or rulers or governors. Uh, these are whole people groups that are against them and don't want to see it happen, don't want to see it come together. And if that weren't enough, the workers are wearing out. There's so much rubble in some places that they can't get a good foundation and a good structure for the wall to be built up. We're going to read a little bit later in chapter 5. You guys will be reading uh, probably Wednesday, I guess it is this week, or Tuesday, something like that. Um, we're going to be reading in chapter 5 that there are some of the nobles and officials who are, who are abusing the poor. The people who are living in Jerusalem are, are saying, uh, we don't have any food to feed our families. And the reason why is, is because some of the officials and some of the nobles had lent them money, and when the people missed a payment, they took their farm. They, they took their, their goods, they, or they, 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 they forced them to make payment. And so they forced them basically into selling off their children, particularly selling off their, their daughters into slavery or servanthood so that they could repay the people that they had missed the loan on, right? And Nehemiah is going to say, oh, no, you don't. You're going to forgive their debt. But, you know, in all of the face of this opposition, in the midst of this great work, you know, that Nehemiah had heard, certainly heard from God about what to do, and he had this great work to do, but there is nothing but trouble. I I, I want to focus a little bit here on the trouble part because this is true of all of our lives, isn't it? It's true of no matter what you do, there is struggle. No matter what we try to accomplish in our lives, there's struggle. And even in the church, even in church work, even in ministry, there is always struggle, right? Um, and, and part of the question is, is that what do we do with the trouble? How, how do we see it? How do we interpret it when trouble comes? How do we see it whenever we face adversity? You know, what do you do if you're Nehemiah in this place and you feel certain that God's called you to do this work, but it seems like everywhere you turn, there's just more and more and more trouble. And they get people, you know, so they get threats from these other governors. They get threats from their own people who live near them and say, it doesn't matter where you turn. It doesn't matter what you do. They're going to come and attack you, right? And the wall can't get built in some places because it's so bad, in such bad shape, and the workers are tired. And what in the world is Nehemiah to do? How is he to take this? Well, let me ask you, when you have adversity, when you have trouble, when you feel like you're doing the things that God has called you to do, and you face opposition and adversity and trouble on every side, what do you think about it? How do you interpret that? What, what, what do you, what, how, do you, how do you view it? I think one of the things that's so important in Nehemiah is that at every time he faces adversity, and it's all throughout the book, 
You're going to read this. You're going to read about trouble and adversity in almost every chapter um, from somewhere, from someone. Someone is opposing him. Um, and uh, you're going to read it time and time again. And, you know, there's a couple of things, I think, a couple of ways that we respond. First, I think our first, uh, the first thing that we might want to do is just turn tail and run. Just forget this, right? It, it's not worth all this trouble. Uh, apparently, God is opposed to what I'm doing here or else things would be going better. So I'm just going to give up on this and turn and, and run away. Certainly, you know, uh, I think we have all been guilty in our lives about giving up when things got difficult about giving up in the midst of, of things whenever things got difficult just because we don't have, we don't have the courage to face it t- sometimes. Sometimes we don't have the strength to make it. Or sometimes we misinterpret hardship. Sometimes we misinterpret adversity. Sometimes we look at adversity as, as if, well, if God were in this, I wouldn't have any adversity. Anybody ever thought that? Don't raise your hand. That's where sometimes the health and wealth gospel has crept into our thinking, Right? But let me just tell you, there is no one in all of Scripture who was doing the will of God who didn't face adversity. There is nobody, right? So the health and wealth gospel says, well, you know, if you do all the right things, if you're, you know, if you're giving all the right money to all the right people on your television set, uh, if, you're, um, uh, if you're living a particular way, if, you know, if you're living outside of sin, if you're doing all these things well, then everything will go well for you. That's just not in the Bible. It's just not there. As a matter of fact, the opposite is in the Bible, is that everyone who is doing the work of God faced adversity and trouble and hardship. Everyone. Yeah? Okay. So the question is, what do we do with it? First thing is, is that the first thing I'd suggest to you is that um, adversity is not a good indicator about whether or not you're filling the, the calling of God on your life. It's just not. Use some other test. That's not the one. You know what I'm saying? When you face adversity, that's not the time that you stand back and say, well, was this the will of God or not? It's just a terrible way to understand and interpret the will of God. You might as well use lots like they did in the Old Testament, but you shouldn't use lots. Um, uh, uh, It's just a terrible way to interpret results. And we as people, it's just terrible. We're just terrible at at interpreting what's going on around us and the hardships that we face. But notice one thing about Nehemiah as you read through their book. There's no time that he looks at adversity and just says, well, maybe we should give up. Maybe just this isn't, just isn't the will of God. There's just no doubt in his mind that his calling is God's will. What he's doing is God's will. And so he moves forward and puts plans in place to make all this stuff happen. And so let's go ahead and finish this, uh, this part today, and then uh, we'll, we'll kind of continue. Um, let's see, in verse 13. So here's what Nehemiah does. So here they're talking, they're being threats of attack. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Isn't Nehemiah cool? I, I, you know, about any book that mentions weapons, I really just love. I, that's probably bad. But, you know, can you just see that, though? You see these ordinary, common people who are standing there defi- taking a stand for, probably for the first time in uh, about how many years? About, uh, about 300 years taking a stand to defend their city. Uh, how about that? Nehemiah is going to give a really incredible speech here lately. He says, you stand and you do the work. You do it for your homes and you do it for your family. Just this beautiful speech. There will be a day when the strength of men fail. Anyway, okay. Anybody know that? A little Lord of the Rings there for you. Okay, never mind. All right. After I looked in verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And here we go. You ready? 
and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that inspiring stuff? 300 years, the, the, the walls of Jerusalem had laid in ruin. There was nothing there to defend. And then finally, Nehemiah comes. They start building something that's worth defending. And he tells them and he inspires them to stand up to the threats of these foreigners. And he says, you stand. You stand for your brothers. You stand for your wives. You stand for your children. You stand for your homes. Uh, isn't that great? Can you just see those guys around the wall being inspired to stand there in the midst of all that trouble. But can I tell you this before we go on? But they stand in the midst of the trouble. Amen? They don't cave. They don't step back in confusion and say, what's going on? I thought this was all going to be easy because it was God's will. No, 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 no. None of that happens. They all knew adversity was going to come. They all knew there was going to be opposition. There's always opposition when God moves. There's always opposition from the enemy. Oftentimes, there's opposition from the church, honestly, in church history. But anyway, um, there's always opposition to God's working. There always is, and you and I can expect it. The question is, what do we do with it when we face it? What do we do with it? My suggestion, if you're called to something, you stand and you ask for God's help. One of the things that was replete throughout all the, all the book of Nehemiah, you see them over and over again, they're praying for God's help. They're praying for his strength. They're praying for, them, for, for each other. Nehemiah's praying for the group of them that they wouldn't lose heart, that they would stand and they would continue to do the work and, and build the walls of Jerusalem so that the city could be defended. All right. So, yeah, just, just a beautiful story, beautiful story. Um, but, um, but there are a couple of things I'd like to point out to you. In the midst of all this adversity, something was happening within the body of believers. And next week when we get to it, it next week we're going to be in, in chapter 8 whenever I preach. Man, I can't, I can't wait. We're going to actually we're going to read about this, uh, this uh, revival that happens in the middle of all this. But, but right now we're talking about the rebuilding of the wall. But, but just a couple of things. Jennifer, on, this, on these two slides, God used adversity. God's going to use the adversity that they face to do a couple of things, in my mind anyway. God used the, the adversity that they faced against their enemies to build real unity and real community amongst the Jews. In other words, so these guys were, everyone was just kind of living there in and around Jerusalem, but they weren't really together in any kind of unified place. But when they worked together and when they defended each other, you begin to see this, this sense of community come back to a people who had been scattered. And, and you remember, again, these people for two or three generations had been living in other countries, many of them. They finally come back together. They have very little in common except a common heritage. God used that time to start building the, the, the unity and community among the Jews. And it was going to be so important for the rest of the chapter. And you'll, you'll pick up on this when you read it. You'll see the unity that's built amongst them from people who, never, who many of them never knew each other before. Only their grandfathers had known each other, grandmothers. And the second thing is God used the adversity to prove to the Jews and their enemies that he was behind the rebuilding. Okay. What if the Israelites or what if the Jews had all gotten together? They had rebuilt the, the uh, city wall, and it was no problem. It was easy work. They just all got together, and everything just fell together. Everyone would have just said, well, the Jews did it, right? The Jews accomplished this thing. But that's not what happened. It was difficult. There were threats all the time. There was trouble all the time. There were threats within the Jews themselves with some of the greed that was happening within their own, own uh, brotherhood. Uh, there were enemies that were from outside. There was a difficult task itself just from the physical work. But when the Israelites saw that God had done this, 
They were so encouraged. That, see, and, and I can't overstress this to you, but for 300 years, Jerusalem lay in waste, and they thought that they had been abandoned by God. When the walls started coming back up, however, they began to see that, and when there was adversity that come in, it was a bigger task than they ever thought they could do. When it was larger than themselves, and it happened, they began to say, we are not abandoned. Our God is still with us. He is still for us. And it wasn't just the Israelites or the Jews who recognized this. Their enemies recognized it, and they were absolutely demoralized by the fact that they were able to finish the wall. Carl, can you turn the heat down? It's just kind of cooking all of a sudden. Uh, but the Jews, were, the Jews were encouraged, and their enemies were demoralized at the, at the rebuilding of the wall. Just incredible stuff. So the, the point is, though, is that it was through the adversity, right? It was through the adversity that community was built and unity was built. It was through adversity that the Jews were encouraged. It was through adversity that their enemies were demoralized. Um. I want to share uh, maybe just another part or two. Just jot this down. In, if, if you're taking notes, just jot this verse, these verses down. In Amos chapter 4, there's a whole account of God um, bringing the Israelites through all this different adversity. First, he starts in, in, uh, in Amos chapter 4, about verse 6. He starts saying, I withheld rain from you, and there was, and you were thirsty for water. People would go stumbling from city to city looking for water because I withheld rain from you, and you didn't have enough water to drink. And then he says this incredible statement at the end of each of these phrases. He says, yet you would not return to me. And then he goes on and he says, I, I, I caused a drought, and I, took, I shrunk your crops, and I took away your, your um, herds, and so you were starving, and yet you would not return to me. And he says, and then I brought foreign enemies, and some of your young men were killed in battle, and yet you would not return to me. You see, there are a couple of things about that. The first is that God keeps sending hardship and adversity to the Israelites. And what was the purpose? He was trying to get them to return to him, right? So in all of this, is God's adversity, was it punishment for them? No. You know, punishment, I've said this before, but punishment is something that a judge does to someone who's been convicted under the law. Discipline is something that a father does to a child to direct them in a way that is blessing and peace. Yeah? The, the father disciplines his children. And, and for you and I, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no punishment left for you. All of that was heaped on the Lord Jesus Christ. He took all of the punishment for us. There is no, there is no just, there, here's the letter of the law, you broke it, you'll be punished for us. Now, there will be for people who are not in the Lord Jesus Christ. That day is coming, right? The, 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 the day of the great white throne judgment of Christ. That day is coming for them. However, for you and I, we have escaped judgment and punishment because of what Jesus Christ has done. And now all that is left for us is correction. All that's left for us is discipline in this same exact way. I'm going to tell one more quick story, and then, and then I promise we'll quit. Um, <clears throat> do, um, I was looking up the word idol, um, the word idol. You know, the, the Israelites struggle with idols. And do you know when the first struggle, you remember the first time they struggled with idols? You know what, I think it was in Genesis 3, but no, that's another time. Um, the Israelites struggle with idols the very first time. Do you remember? Moses had gone up, received the Ten Commandments. When they came back down, what did he find? 
all them fellers had taken their earrings and melted them down. Hey, let's make a cow. You know why? Because other nations had cows, right? They, they worshipped cows. Weird, isn't it? Bulls, really. Um, and so they made, a, they made a golden calf, right? Um, because the calf was considered strength. It was considered um, a blessing for, um, uh, for more calves. What do you call it? For offspring, greater offspring, greater increase. Huh? Fertility, thank you. Yes, <laughs> I couldn't remember what that word was. Fertility, yes. And so they picked up what their neighbors had. So very, before they even received the law, they're struggling with idolatry, all right? So this happens about what? Uh, this is about 1400 B.C., right? Moses and, and all that, about 14, 1450 B.C., mm, something like that. Can't remember exactly. Seems like it's 1445, but anyway, something like that. Um, so then we have the span of time where they struggle with it. So all throughout... The book of Moses, the word idols is used from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you pick up in the history books, right? Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. All of those is talking about the idolatry problem that the Israelites have. Do you know what span of time that is? About 900 years they struggle with idolatry. Then we pick up, and then, then we have the captivity where the Assyrians are coming and they're pulling out Israelites and the... And the, and the uh, uh, Babylonians are coming, and they're pulling out Israelites, and God's just scattering them all over the known world, really, all over the Middle East, and he's just scattering them all over, and they lose their identity as a people, really. They lose their promised land. It's all taken and overrun by a bunch of uh, pagans, right? And they come, and then they start to come back, right? They come back under, under Zerubbabel. They come back under uh, um, um, uh, Ezra, and they come back under Nehemiah. You know, in the, in, okay, so that, all, that whole period is talked about as the, as the, as the time of the exile. That's, that's about 300 years between the, when the, the time that they, that they leave and the time that they get to come back is about 300 years. That's not exactly right, just the very first time they take anybody. Uh, but anyway, about 300 years that they're in the ex- exile. Okay, the post-exilic period, they call it, right? Those are the books of history that we see after the, king, the Samuel, the Kings, and Chronicles. And that's what? That's Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah right? All those three books. Those are, the, those are history books. That's why they're before the Psalms. They're all grouped together with Psalms and, or with uh, Samuel and, and Kings and Chronicles. But they're, they're at the end of the Old Testament, really, honestly. But, but they keep all the prophets grouped together, the history books grouped together, the books of poetry and uh, all grouped together with Psalms and, and Job and all that stuff. Okay. Okay. So in the post-exilic books of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, right? In, in all those stories and all those accounts, there is no mention of the word idol in all of those. Do you know why? Because God had used the trouble and the hardship of the exile to get wholehearted devotion for his, from his people. There's no mention of idols in that time, and no doubt there was some minor idol worship there and whatnot, but it's never mentioned because it's not a major problem because God had finally driven out of them when he scattered them and he drew the, drove, drove them out into the desert of, 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 of all this hardship in, in the, all these foreign countries, and they finally come back together. There's finally wholehearted devotion to the Lord. They recognize that, um, let, let's see, that, let me... Uh, Let's bring up that next set there, Jennifer, please. It was in the adversity of the exiles that the Jews turned from their idols, realized their need from God, and wholeheartedly sought the Lord together. We're going to get to read that next week a little bit as we get into Nehemiah chapter 8. But, um, but here's what I'd like to say and kind of how I'd like to, to, like to leave it today um, is that God over and over again is using difficulty and hardship and adversity and whatever you want to call it in your life and in my life and all through the history of the people of God, he's used it so that he 
could have our wholehearted devotion. There's a place in, could you bring up, I got to, we got to go to a reading. Can you bring up the Hosea chapter 4? Or chapter 2, I'm sorry. Hosea chapter 4. Okay, this is God talking about, this is God telling them through the, through the prophet of Hosea. He's telling about the coming exile. Okay, so this is way before Nehemiah. This is happening about 300 years before Nehemiah. This is before the Assyrian captivity, just, I don't know, a couple of decades before the Assyrian captivity where they're going to start pulling people, where, where they're going to start pulling people out of, out of Jerusalem. But look what, look what uh, Hosea says through, through God. And he's talking about, God's referring to Israel as a, as a woman. And he's talking, listen how tenderly he's talking about her. Therefore, I am now going to allure her I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. You know what I think? I think this is partially fulfilled by the exile of, of the Jews. I think this, this I'm going to lead her out into the desert is a prophecy about what's going to come here in the, in the coming centuries where God's going to lead them out in exile and captivity to foreign places. Because listen to what he says next. There I will give her back the vineyards and will make the valley of Achor. We've talked about that in the time. I don't have time to get into it today. But the, the valley of Achor, Achor means trouble. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt when she was set free from being a, a, a slaves in, in Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will no longer call me, or I'm sorry, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. All right. It's such beautiful language here, but what, what he's saying here is that I'm going to lead her into the desert. Why would you bring anyone into the desert? It's hard there. It's hardship there. It's, it's difficult there. Why would God do that? Because what he wants is he wants to give her back all the things that she was missing. Uh, this term here at the end, in that day declares the Lord, you will no longer, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. That, that word in Hebrew is actually, he uses the word Baal. You will no longer call me my Baal. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to take your idols away from you and you're going to come back to me like a faithful wife comes back to her husband. And I will call you, and you will call me my husband. And uh, later on, he's going to say, and I'm going to betroth you again. In other words, he's going to pledge himself to her again because she's come back now and let go of her idols. But adversity used here to bring about wholehearted devotion from God's people. Isn't it true of us that we sometimes, we don't have wholehearted devotion? We don't seek the Lord well. But man, we start, things start falling apart in our lives, and all of a sudden we get really serious about it. Right? The reason this is true of the Israelites is the same reason that it's true for us, that we need adversity in our lives. And it's unfortunate, but we're just a sinful and rebellious people. But God uses adversity in our lives to purify our faith, to, to, to refine the love and the devotion that we might have for him. And I pray that he would refine the love and the devotion that he would have for us as a church. Amen? Amen? In this year, in this time, I, I pray for that. I pray for a refining of our hearts uh, a, um, uh, a, a, re a revival in our hearts of a real seeking, a wholehearted seeking of the Lord. Amen? Amen? All right. So the next time you face adversity, I just want to encourage you, see it for what it is. Oftentimes it's the Lord directing his children back to wholehearted devotion to him, to remember that, oh, yes, Lord, I forgot for a time because things were so good. I forgot for a time how desperate I am for you, how desperately I need you. All right, let's pray. I've talked too much. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we thank you for the example of the Israelites because it's, it's a, they are a metaphor for us. And um, the struggles that they had with being true and faithful to you, Lord God, we have the same struggles. 
Um, but Father, we know, we see that you used adversity in their lives and we know that you use adversity in our lives and you don't mean it to punish us. You don't mean, as, mean it to show us that, that you're disgusted with us or you hate us. On the contrary, you use it like a father uses discipline to show us and to teach us uh, the way toward a, a loving heart, a heart that is devoted to you, a heart that is willing to follow you. And uh, so, Father, we just thank you for that. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah and all the struggles that they faced. Uh, and, Lord, we thank you that they never gave up, but they prayed and they sought after you in the face of adversity, and they asked you for strength, and they continued doing your work. So, Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to interpre- interpret uh, our difficulties, our hardship, our trouble in the right way. And, Lord, I do pray you would use all of the adversities that we face to bring us back into a more pure and holy and refined relationship with you that we might be wholly devoted to seeking you. It's in Jesus' great name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.